So we are continuing our study in Luke, little vignettes of the life of Christ, and our prayer has been that he would reveal himself to us in new and fresh and deeper ways. So Lord, we're asking you to do that as we open your word again. Uh, I want to start with an analogy, kind of an illustration that I think, that I hope this analogy will maybe help us realize what was going on in the hearts and the lives of some of the people in this scene. You know, one of the biggest decisions that every young person, those of us who are already married, went through this. We we have to make a decision. It's one of the most important decisions of our life. Who we are going to build a relationship with and marry to spend our lives together. And you know, the world's perspective, the natural human inclination is to look for somebody who's beautiful and rich, powerful, you know, popular, Because we think that that kind of a person will be able to meet our needs and provide all the things that, if we're honest with ourselves, we really think we need to be happy. We really need to need to be secure. And so it's it's common for people to look for that kind of a person who checks those boxes. But all you have to do is go to the grocery store and look at the tabloid magazines and you realize, hmm, how's that working out? Right? The people who are the most rich, the most beautiful, the most popular, the most powerful, how are their marriages working out? It's hard to go through the check stand without seeing headlines of another marriage of people who fit this checklist that is imploded. And often it's the third or fourth or fifth marriage for these people that has imploded. And so it is a mirage that this is what is actually needed to bring security and peace And happiness into life. And sometimes I think that we, people come and they view God that way. They, they want Him because of the things that they think He can provide that will give them the happiness and security that they're looking for. And so they come to Him looking for those things. And they find themselves sometimes very disappointed. And I think we see that happening in some of the people. Bad choices. It's easy to make bad choices about who we build relationships with. And that can be true, too, in regard to our spiritual life. Who we rely on, who we trust, who we follow, who we believe. Luke 19, this passage we're going to look at today is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry and you know i think it's really kind of an ironic title because the truth is that we find out that this crowd of people that at least some of them i would say probably many of them completely changed their mind about jesus in just a few days they went from singing his praises to calling for him to be crucified. How did that happen? What caused that? We're going to explore that a little bit this morning. I want to read the passage. I know that's small. I didn't want to split it up into a bunch of different, so you can open your Bible if it's too small for you to read. That would probably be better anyway. I'm going to read it from my Bible. Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. 
And when he had said, he being Jesus, when he had said these things, he just told a parable, right? When he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you you why you are untying it, you shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who who were sent went away and found it as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And he said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So, I think it's ironic when you keep it in context of what happens. We're told in some of the other Gospels, this is a big crowd. You know, describes them as his disciples, but this was a big crowd. And some of them turn on him later. We've got to keep that in mind. It's hard to understand how that could happen. How could someone's attitude go from praising him, lauding him as the promised king, the Messiah that God had promised to send, and in such a short time, go from that to calling for him to be crucified? It's hard to see. One of the reasons they knew this was Jesus was because the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in this scene, along with many others that had already been fulfilled, confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. For example, it talked about there them going and getting this colt. We're told in other, in other uh, Gospels that it was the colt of a donkey. That's a direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's happening in this scene, right? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So directly fulfilling, specifically fulfilling a prophecy about Jesus. The praises that they were singing, that fulfilled fulfilled a prophecy too. Psalm 118 predicted that when the Messiah arrived, this would be said about him, save us. It's the word Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke, it just says, they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But Matthew tells us they were saying Hosanna. They were saying, save us. Save us. The son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, again, very specific fulfilling of prophecy as to what would be said about him. There's um, this reference to in, da- in David uh, or in Matthew of him as the son of David. Again, a fulfillment. They, they understood that he was of the lineage of David and that this predicted king who would come would be a descendant of David. The one who would sit on the throne forever. 
You know, when people spread their coats, this was something that was only done for people who were of noble birth, usually just for kings when they came back from a battle. Conquering victorious kings. People would take their cloaks off in the palm branches. This was something that was used generally just for, for kings, conquering kings. And so they were saying, Jesus, he's the promised conquering king. Even the timing here of this event, this triumphal entry, the timing was an incredible fulfillment of prophecy. Back in Jan- Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy was given that when a king named Artaxerxes gave the command for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, it had been ransacked, that there would be 483 years between Artaxerxes giving the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the time that the Messiah, the king, would enter Jerusalem. And here it is. And scholars have calculated that this is 483 years to the day, if you use the Jewish calendar. 483 years to the day. And Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel. It's incredible. Now, None of these things were lost on these Jewish people. They were looking for the Messiah. They'd been, they'd been anxious for the Messiah to come. They knew these things. And so as all of this is being fulfilled, they are incredibly excited because the one they'd been looking for, they're recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. This is a good thing. If their hearts are in the right place, it's a good thing. And so he All of these things are happening, but with all of these things, all of these fulfillments of prophecy, how then could he not, they not have, have, have followed him as he wanted them to? It's really hard to understand. You know, the, the Pharisees, they got it. They knew. They knew that this was proclaiming him as the Messiah, and they didn't want him to be the Messiah, because it threatened their power. And so they say to him, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Jesus responds, remember what he said? If these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's sad, but it's kind of humorous in a way, too. You know what Jesus is basically saying to them? He's saying, you know what? After all the evidence, after all the fulfilled prophecy, after all of these people who recognize it and who are acknowledging Jesus as the promised Messiah... And you refuse, after all of this, to join them in their worship and praise of Jesus. You know what? You're less responsive than a rock. You ever hear somebody say, yeah, that person's dumber than a rock. Well, these people, Jesus is saying, you know what? It's more likely that a rock's going to sing the praises of Jesus and respond rightly to him than you because your heart is so hard. And so rebellious and so unresponsive to God, even in the face of all the evidence, all the fulfilled prophecy, that you are less responsive than a rock. Humorous, but really more sad. And the the sad thing is that even still today, in spite of all the evidence, 
in so many different ways that God has given to humanity and to each of us as individuals. So many people in the face of all of that still, because they're hard at heart, refuse to respond rightly to Jesus. And it's the same hardness of heart that's happening. You know, a lot of times people say, you know, well, if I just had more evidence, if God would just directly reveal himself to me, then I would respond in our Thursday night seeking God group with the young guys. Really good question came up this week. They, you know, we want, we talked about, you know, what about, how can it be fair that the people who've never ever even heard about Jesus would be sent to hell? How can that be fair if they didn't even get the message of Jesus? How can that be fair? And this sheds light on that. Because Romans 1 tells us that if they just have creation and that's all they have, they're without excuse. You say, well, how can that, how can that be enough for it to be appropriate for them to be condemned? And the answer is that God says, I have revealed many things about myself through creation. Who God is, much about him, is evident from creation. And when people respond to that, not by worshiping the creator that has revealed himself, many things about himself, by worshiping the creator and they instead choose to worship the creation, they choose to worship some man or they choose to worship the sun god or the moon god or the god of the eagle or the, you know, we talked about, remember guys, we talked about Native American Indians and You know, they're animus. They're worshiping creation. Right? That reveals a heart of rebellion. If they, if they were seeking God, and this is the the principle that's so beautiful. God clearly says over and over, all throughout scripture, if you seek me, you will find me. Jamie read it this morning, right? He who seeks will find. If you seek me, you will find me. If I have a heart that is seeking God, he will give me more and more and more and everything I need to come to faith in Jesus. If my heart is hard, no amount of evidence will do any good. It doesn't matter. These people had been watching Jesus for years. During the the, the last couple years of his ministry, they'd seen him teach. They, They had seen all the miracles. They'd seen all the things he had done. And in the end, they even saw that he'd resurrected from the dead and they still didn't respond. They were eyewitnesses of all of this. And many of them, many of them remained in the rebellion. So this idea that, well, if God would just reveal himself by showing me a miracle, I would no. He who seeks finds. If you seek me, you will find me. If the heart is hard and God never makes a mistake. God knows the heart that is genuinely, sincerely seeking him. And he will reward that. The Bible promises that over and over. So God never makes a mistake. If somebody's heart is seeking him, they will hear about Jesus. And if they didn't, if they didn't hear about Jesus, it wouldn't have done any good. Because God knows the hardness of their heart. Sorry, little bunny trail. But I think important because... 
it's hard to understand how they could have all of this evidence, personally have watched and heard Jesus and still persist and cry out for him to be crucified after all of that. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. So what, what caused them to flip from lauding him as the promised coming king to calling for him to be crucified? Well, one of the things that happened is that they had a mistaken idea of what Jesus had come to do, of what the kingdom was, was all about. And they thought that the kingdom was going to be immediately established and that Israel would be brought back to its glory. We know that because Luke tells us that's what they were thinking. Just a few verses earlier in, in chapter 19, says he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they, the people, the Pharisees, the people, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They thought it was now. They thought those prophecies about the conquering king were coming now. But it wasn't now. And their focus, their preoccupation on the earthly things got in the way of them being able to really understand what God's agenda was. They, they focused on all the conquering king stuff, but they didn't want to listen and remember all of the prophecies about the Messiah being a suffering servant, a savior. They forgot things like Isaiah 53, and I just want us to read it because it's important for us to, to remember what they didn't remember. These are just excerpts. I apologize. I don't normally like to carve scripture up, but I wanted us to focus on the phrases in Isaiah 53 that if they had just remembered this, they would not have had the same expectations. It says this, he, Jesus, well, the Messiah, speaking of the Messiah, we know it's Jesus now, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He, no, it's Jesus now, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities or our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sins of us all. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death. He bore the sin of many. Oh, they were all about the conquering king prophecies. But there's no mention of this in their thinking, it seems to be. They forgot that the Messiah first needed to accomplish this. They didn't think that it wasn't just about all the physical stuff, the earthly stuff that was on their agenda. They didn't understand that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God is primarily about Jesus reigning in the hearts and minds of people. Jesus had made it clear that this was true. 
Looking back in Luke earlier, it said back in, Jesus said to them back in Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is coming in ways that cannot be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Think about that. This is the kingdom Jesus was here to establish first, way more importantly than the physical reigning here on earth, which will come. But this is the more important. This was his agenda. And they thought it was all about the other stuff. Well, you can kind of understand why they did, right? Why they weren't thinking of the kingdom within. And we'll talk a little more about what that means. But Romans fourteen seventeen that you see there, that gives us more detail. What, it, what, what do you mean within? What does God want to do within? It says in Romans 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus come? Why does he want you to choose him as your king? Why did he want these people to choose him as their king? What was his goal? His plan is much, much bigger than the agenda they had. It's much more important, much more valuable than the agenda they had. It was to give them inner inner things, things that have eternal value, things like the things listed there in Romans 14. His kingdom is about providing people righteousness. That's forgiveness of sins. That's, that's God looking at you and seeing no sin. You are righteous because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And it's also the power of God at work in our lives every day as his followers to give us power and victory over sin. So we sin less and less and we become more and more righteous, conformed to the image of God until one day when we're with him, we are completely righteous. No more sin. Hallelujah to that. Righteousness. He also says his kingdom is about giving people peace. He wants to be king in these people's life, in your life, in my life, to give peace. Multifaceted here. We don't have time to spend a lot of time on these, but peace. He wants peace between us and God. Jesus came to create peace so that we're no longer the enemies of God, but we are loved by him. We are his children. We are, we are brought into relationship with him. He, he, he's come to give us peace in our relationship with each other, to transform that. He's come to deal with, give us peace in regard to anxiety and fear. These are the things. He, this inner, inner change within, what he, his agenda is about changing us from within and bringing us into relationship. He wants to give us joy, the third thing. And these are huge categories. You could probably put the rest of the gifts. There's, Dozens and dozens of things that are ours in Christ. Probably they would fit under these maybe three. This is just a broad sweeping. He's saying, look, these are the kind of things. Joy. When the Bible talks about joy, it's talking about things that are based and rooted in things that can never, ever change. Yeah. He can't. We're not. You know, we can be happy about stuff. Things change. You've heard me say this before. But joy Christian joy, biblical joy, the joy that King Jesus wants to give us is based upon things like that my sins are forgiven. Nothing can ever change that. That'll be true for all eternity, past, present, future. I'm adopted as a child of God. Nothing can ever change that. 
That's mine. I have the power of the Holy Spirit working within me. This process that we were talking about, building righteousness, transforming me until one day I'll never sin again. He, we have, you know, a home in heaven. And we could go on and on and on and on. Joy, Christian joy is based on these things. Things that have eternal value. Things that never, ever change. So, this was the agenda why Jesus came. He wanted to give them these things. He wanted them to experience these things. But of course, they had a different agenda. They wanted to, uh, they, they were focused on the things that they'd seen Jesus do. So what, what did they see Jesus do? I well, missed a section here. Bear with me just a second. Ah, two pages stuck together, that's why. Well, I'll do it off the top of my head. The, they had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people, right? They had seen Jesus heal any kind of sickness they brought to him. They had seen Jesus cast out any kind of demon that was oppressing or controlling someone. They had even seen Jesus raise people from the dead, right? Who wouldn't want that guy as your king, right? They're, they're, they're thinking, woohoo, woohoo, all our problems are done. We'll never be hungry, you know. It, it, it makes me think a little bit of those who are turning the gospel into God wants to make you healthy and wealthy, right? And he wants to solve all your problems and he wants to make life never have a problem anymore. And when people are coming to Jesus with that kind of a heart and that kind of an attitude and that kind of an expectation, it ends badly. You know, I've had a conversation with a few people over the years where they say to me, you know, I tried Christianity and it doesn't work. So I I started probing a little bit. Well, what do you mean you tried Christianity? What do you mean by that? And you find out what they mean is, well, you know, I started going to church. And I started actively participating in the worship services. And I, you know, I went to a small group Bible study. And I, you know, and I got really engaged in, in the church stuff. But then when I prayed and I asked God to give me a better job or to increase my income or to heal my sickness or to change my spouse or to give me a spouse or a friend because I'm lonely. And God didn't deliver in the way or in the time that they thought he should. They decided Christianity doesn't work. Kind of like the people here. Their agenda was, woohoo, King Jesus. All our problems are solved. He can do all of this stuff for me. And then when it doesn't happen, Jesus gets pushed aside. Well, if you're not going to do that, crucify him. If you're not going to do that, then Christianity doesn't work. It's sad. It's sad. What Jesus is looking for is he wants to come. He wants hearts that acknowledge him as that suffering Savior who loves us so much that he would offer himself in our place, allowing our sin to be put on him, allowing 
God the Father to punish him in our place, to take the judgment that we deserve. This is the king that he wants us to see and recognize. This is the king who is safe to surrender my life to. He wants to be king in our heart, in our mind, in our life, because we recognize that when someone loves me that much, the safest place to be is to trust him and follow him. If he loves me that much and he is God of the universe, then he can be trusted to always do what is good for me, what is right, what is best for me, always rooted in his love, in his mercy, in his wisdom, in his generosity. And we could go on and on and on and on and on. As we get to know Jesus, he wants us to make him king in our heart. The kingdom that Jesus came to establish is within us, first of all. Oh, the physical earthly kingdom's coming. Yes. But what Jesus is about is the kingdom within us. It's the kingdom of those who've surrendered themselves to him because they see him, his goodness and his love. They see him as that suffering savior of Isaiah 53. And they want him to reign in their hearts, in their minds, in their hearts, in their life. Because that's where the peace and the joy and the righteousness that he came to give us comes from when we surrender to him. Some of you maybe have never done that. Maybe you've never put your trust in Jesus. I invite you this morning to recognize him, yes, as the king of the universe, but recognize him this morning as the one that you want to make king in your own heart. That you want to trust him as the only one who can provide forgiveness of your sins, who can make you fit for heaven, and who can transform your life. And bring you the righteousness, the joy, the peace that you so desperately want and have been looking everywhere for. And you haven't been able to find it. Because it only comes in him. And those of us who know Jesus, I want to invite you, if, if, if you're recognizing, you know, I belong to him. But I haven't, in some ways, maybe some specific ways that the Spirit's speaking to you this morning, been Allowing him to reign in my life. I haven't been submitting myself to him as my king that I trust. I've been making choices that, that to do this or think this or act this way. Because I think I know better than he does what will make me happy. And because of that, you realize now that you've been depriving yourself of the righteousness, the peace, the joy that allowing him to reign in your heart brings. Then... I invite you right now to confess that to him. Tell him you want to let him reign. Right now, ask him to give you a deep conviction of the depth of his love for you so that you feel safe. Wanting to completely surrender to him. Lord, we're thankful for this picture of people who intellectually knew that you were the Messiah. And some of them were genuine worshipers. They were followers of yours who wanted you to change their hearts. And others, when they found out that you had a different agenda, they turned on you. Lord, 
Help us to see that. Help us to recognize which category we're in. And help us, Lord, to respond rightly. Help us to surrender to you as the king of our life, the king of our heart. And, Lord, we welcome the righteousness, the peace, and the joy that only you can give. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.